Thank you. Um, let me read you an email that came in last night. Dearest Sandy, I have been under the weather with a respiratory infection, and I'm currently on antibiotics, but keep thinking I'll wake up one morning new and improved, though it hasn't happened yet. Thought I should let you know in case tomorrow too falls through, which would fill me with sorrow and regret, but we'll email tomorrow, yay or nay. Apologies. I've never been sick in a lingering way like this before, so it's a very unpleasant surprise. Love, Lori. Uh, that was distressing, and so was the email she followed up with this morning, saying that she felt even worse. And... Uh, I made a, a quick telephone call, and I'm absolutely delighted that uh, her friend and mine, Michael Cunningham, has agreed to read uh, in, instead of Lori. Uh, and it's very nice because Michael Cunningham, Kaz Phillips, and Louise Glick, uh, and I are all colleagues at Yale, teaching in the English department and in the very superb writing program uh, at Yale. And Ed White... Uh, long-time contributor to the Yale Review, I'd, I couldn't imagine hosting a reading that he wasn't a part of. So I'm glad uh, I know you'll have a good time with them. The, um, the 100th anniversary of the Yale Review, I want to say a word about that before the readers come up. This uh, is the first of the four special issues, the 100th anniversary, and there's copies of it for you to pick up free on your way out. Uh, this is slightly unusual uh, issue because it features only people who teach at Yale uh, and uh, there's quite a considerable faculty and does not include the usual fiction and poetry that the magazine is noted for but uh, it's quite an extraordinary collection of really fascinating stuff. Um, the Yale Review is, uh, I know many people claim this, but the Yale Review is actually the oldest literary quarterly in America. <laughs> Um, and it's not just, our, I mean, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary only of just another date in its history. Uh, the magazine was actually founded in 1819 uh, when it was known as the Christian Spectator. They shed that uh, uh, somewhere in the 19th century. Um, but it really wasn't until 1911, when there already existed since 18, uh, 1893 as the Yale Review, but the then uh, chairman of the English Department at Yale, Wilbur Cross, uh, one day stopped the president of Yale in, in the rain and ducked under his umbrella and said that he had an idea to change the Yale Review to make it something much more international in scope and uh, noted in its, uh, for its contributors. Uh, he, they agreed. He did all of this, and within the first um, few decades, he had published the likes of uh, Thomas Mann, André Gide, Henry Adams, Sean O'Casey, Virginia Woolf, Robert Frost, Edith Wharton, Eugene O'Neill, Josiah Ross, Leon Trotsky, H.G. Wells, Thomas Wolfe, H.L. Mencken, Benedetto Croce, A.E. Hausman, you know, Sherwood Anderson, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that kind of quality has been maintained by the three editors who've served since Wilbur Cross's time. He served a long time, and I should say, uh, just to remind you how different politics were then, uh, while he was editor of the Yale Review, he also served concurrently four terms as governor of Connecticut uh, and never stopped editing the Yale Review. So they had very little to do, I guess, uh, in, in those days. Uh, it's been, uh, uh, I've been there for 20 years now, and uh, we have added, uh, again, some extraordinary people, as before me, from uh, the first issue I got, we actually had uh, Vladimir Nabokov uh, contribute, and, and uh, many others, including readers tonight. Uh, and I just want to read a little, I mean, the, the Literary Quarterly is a threatened 
species. Uh, and I don't know what the future of that will be. I think if writers had the choice between uh, elegant paper and uh, a beautifully printed uh, piece or, or online having thousands of more readers, I suppose they would answer that they would want both. Uh, that may not be possible in the future. But while it exists uh, in this form, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to, um, to publish and to read. Um, just let me just add a little thing that uh, is in the forward to this 100th anniversary issue. In a land of quick fixes and short views, and in a time of increasingly commercial publishing, the journal has an authority that derives from its commitment to both established writers and promising newcomers. I must say, newcomers, among the people who published for the first time in the Yale Review when they were young, uh, not after 18-year gaps, were people like John Cheever, Eudora Welty, uh, Elizabeth Hardwick, uh, and uh, so on, uh, to both uh, the, its commitment to both uh, challenging literary work and a range of essays and reviews that can explore the connections between academic disciplines and the broader movements in American society, thought, and culture. With independence and boldness and with a concern for issues and ideas, with a respect for the mind's capacity to be surprised by speculation and delighted by elegance, the Yale Review proudly nears its third century and celebrates this year the anniversary of a remarkable transformation and of a still more remarkable record. Can't think of a better way of doing that than having a group of friends listen to some four extraordinary writers. The first of whom is the novelist Carol Phillips, who was born in the West Indies and raised in England. He's the author of many uh, works of both fiction, plays, uh, nonfiction. His novel, Dancing in the Dark, won the 2006 Penn Beyond Margins Award, and an earlier novel, A Distant Shore, won the 2004 Commonwealth Writers' Prize. He's won the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize, Guggenheim's, and uh, he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, teaches at Yale, as I mentioned, and lives in New York. His most recent novel is In the Falling Snow, and like earlier novels, it's a it explores the gritty middle passage of race and class in contemporary society. And uh, please welcome him, my friend, Carol Phillips. Thank you, Sandy. It's, it's terrific to be doing something both for the Yale Review, which Sandy eloquently taught about its history, very distinguished history, and also for the Writers Studio, which is an incredibly important organization. And maybe, I guess everybody here knows what the Writers Studio is, but um, the two together, very humbling. And also to be reading with Ed White and Louise and Michael is a terrific honor. As Sandy says, um, one of the nice things about being a writer of fiction is that one is able to uh, hide. Um, and hiding one's personal life, hiding the, um, the, the tracks and the footprints that have led you to where you are now, um, well, it seems to me to be one of the few pleasures of writing fiction. You can um, disappear, be off stage. A couple of years ago, um, an English newspaper, a British newspaper, asked me if I would write a short piece about the books that had influenced me when I was uh, a youngster growing up. What, I, what had I read? Um, 
what had been important and perhaps what had I written when I was uh, a teenager. And I thought, there's a wee bit of danger here because there may be uh, an element of exposure if I write this. So I thought what I'll do is cunningly write something that answers those questions but answers it in a way in which I don't give anything away. Well, when it was published, I was informed by many people that I'd failed completely <laughs> and that actually um, I was two steps down the down the path of that new, rather um, somewhat attractive genre for a lot of people, memoir. God forbid. <laughs> I'm going to read the piece that I wrote that I thought I was been uh, cunning about. We all have 15 minutes, and I think this lasts 13 minutes. So we may get there under the wire. It's called Growing Pains. A life in ten short chapters. Chapter one. He lives in Leeds, in the north of England. His is a strange school, for there's a broad white line in the middle of the playground. The boys and the girls from the local housing estate, they have to play on one side of the line. His immigrant parents own their own small house, and so he is instructed to play on the other side of the line. He's the only black boy in the school. When the bell signals the end of playtime, the two groups, one group neatly dressed, the other group more discernibly scruffy, retreat into their separate buildings. The five-year-old boy is beginning to understand difference in the form of class. The final lesson of the day is story time. The neatly dressed children, all cross-legged on the floor at the feet of their teacher, listen as she begins to read them a tale about little black Sambo. He can feel eyes upon him. He now wishes that he was on the other side of the line with the scruffy children, either that or would the teacher please read them an entirely different story. Chapter 2. He is a seven-year-old boy, and he has changed schools. At this new school, there are no girls. His teacher asks him to stay behind after the lesson has finished. He is told that he must now take his story, and he must show it to the teacher in the next classroom. He isn't sure if he has been punished, but slowly he walks the short way up the corridor, and he shows the story to the other teacher. She sits on the edge of her desk, and she reads it. And then she looks down at him. But at first, no words are exchanged. And then she speaks, and she says, Well done. I'll hold on to this. Chapter 3. The eight-year-old boy seems to spend his whole day with his head stuck in books. His mother encourages him to get into the habit of going to the local library every Saturday. But he can only take out four books at a time. By Monday, he's read them all. Two brothers up the street sometimes let him borrow their Enid Blyton paperbacks. The famous five adventure stories, Julian, Dick, Anne, George, 
and Timmy the dog are the very first literary lives that he intimately engages with. However, he tells his mother that he doesn't understand why the boy's mother warms the Enid Blyton paperback books in the oven when he returns them. The two brothers have mentioned something to him about germs. His mother is furious. She forbids him to borrow any more books from these two boys. And so he begins now to lose touch with Julian, with Dick, with Anne, with George, and with Timmy the dog. Chapter 4. His parents have recently divorced. He is nine, and he is spending the weekend with his father, who seems to have little real interest in his son. He senses that his father is merely fulfilling a duty, but the son needs the father's attention, and so he writes his father a story. The story includes the words glistening and glittering, which have a glamour that the son finds alluring. When the son eventually hands the story to his father, the father seems somewhat baffled by this offering. His father is an immigrant. This much he already understands. But it is only later that he realizes that imaginative writing played no part whatsoever in his father's colonial education as a subject of the British Empire. His father's schooling never embraced poetic conceits such as those that his son seems determined to indulge in. And as the father hands the story back to his son, a gap begins to open between the two of them. Chapter 5. He is only ten years old when his father decides that it is fine to leave him alone in his Spartan flat while he goes to work the night shift at the local factory. There is no television, no radio, nothing to seize his attention beyond the few comic books and football magazines that the son has brought with him from his mother's house. And then, late at night, alone in the huge double bed, he leans over and he discovers a paperback in the drawer of the bedside table, and he begins to read the book. It's a true story about a white American man who has made himself black in order that he might experience what it's like to be a colored man in America. The ten-year-old boy reads John Howard Griffin's Black Like Me, and alone in his father's double bed, he tries very hard not to be afraid. That night, he leaves the lights on, and in the morning, he's still awake as his exhausted father slides into bed next to him. Chapter 6. At 16, he has no girlfriend. The truth is, his brothers aside, he has few friends of any kind, and he seldom speaks with his father or with his stepmother. During the long summer holiday, he locks himself away in his bedroom, and he reads one great 19th century novel after another. He learns now how to lose himself in the world and the lives of others, and in this way, he doesn't have to think about the woeful state of his own life. At the moment, he's reading Anna Karenina. Towards the end of one afternoon, his heart leaps, 
and he is, he, his heart leaps, and he has to catch his breath, he puts the book down, and he whispers to himself, my God. His stepmother calls him downstairs for dinner. He sits at the table in silence, but he cannot eat. He stares at his brothers. He stares at his father and his stepmother. Do they not understand? Anna has thrown herself in front of a train. Chapter 7. He is 18, and he has completed his first term at university. He cannot go back to his father's place, and so he travels 150 miles north to his mother's house. Mother and son have not of late spent much time in each other's company. His mother doesn't seem to understand that her 18-year-old son is now, according to him, a man. They argue, and he gets in the car and drives off in a fit of frustration. He stops the car in the local park, and he opens his book. However, he cannot get past the sheer audacity of the first sentence of James Baldwin's Blues for Mr. Charlie. And may every nigger like this nigger end like this nigger face down in the weeds. This 18-year-old man is completely overwhelmed by Baldwin's brutal prose. He reads this one sentence over and over and over again. And then he closes the book and he decides that the only thing to do is go back and make up with his mother. Chapter 8. His tutor has asked to see him in his office. Dr. Rabbit informs the student that he has passed the first part of his degree in psychology, neurophysiology, and statistics. But he reassures the student that at 19, there is still time for him to reconsider his choice of a degree. Does he really wish to pursue psychology? The student patiently explains that he wishes to understand people and that before university he was assiduously reading Young and Freud. His unmoved tutor takes some snuff, and then he rubs his beard. So, he says, so, you want to know about people, do you? He patiently explains to the student that William James was the first professor of psychology at Harvard, but it was his brother, Henry, who really knew about people. The student looks at Dr. Rabbit, but he is unsure of what to say, and so his tutor helps him to make the decision. He says, literature. If you want to know about people, study English literature, not psychology. Chapter 9. He is 20, and for the first time since arriving in England as a four-month-old baby, he has left the country. He has traveled to the United States of America and crossed the huge, exciting nation by Greyhound bus. After three weeks on the road, he knows that soon he will have to return to England and complete his final year of university. In California, he goes into a bookstore. He buys a copy of a book that has on the cover 
a picture of a young man who looks somewhat like himself. He takes the book to the beach and he sits on a deck chair and he begins to read. When he finishes Richard Wright's native sun, it's almost dark and the beach is deserted. But he now knows what he wishes to do with his life. And then sometime later he is grateful to discover that mere ambition is fading and is being replaced by something, some, something infinitely more powerful, purpose. Chapter 10. He sits with his great-grandmother in the small village at the far end of St. Kitts, the island on which he was born 28 years earlier. He has now published two novels, and on each publication day he has asked his editor to send a copy of the book to his great-grandmother. But she has never mentioned the books, and so gingerly he now asks her if she ever received them. Does she have them? When she moves, it is like watching a statue come to life. She reaches beneath the chair and slowly pulls out two brown cardboard bundles. The books are still in their packaging. She has opened the bundles, she has looked at the books, and then she has neatly replaced them. Again she opens the packaging. She fingers the books in the same way that he has seen her finger her Bible. Then she looks at her great-grandson and she smiles. She says, I was the teacher's favorite. She was born in 1898, and so he realizes that she's talking to him about life at the dawn of the 20th century. And, she continues, and I missed a lot of school, for I had to do all of the errands. Suddenly he understands what she means. She cannot read. He swallows deeply and he lowers his eyes. How could he be clumsy enough to cause her this embarrassment? She carefully puts the books back into their cardboard packaging and she tucks them back under the chair. She looks at her great-grandson. She doted on this boy for the first four months of his life. The great-grandson, who one day suddenly disappeared to England. The great-grandson, who all these years later now sends her these stories from England. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce Louise Gluck. Uh, Louise is the author of 11 books of poems and a collection of essays. Her many, many awards include the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Circle, the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Bollingen Prize, and the Wallace Stevens Award from the Academy of American Poets. She is, as Sandy has mentioned, a, a colleague, a treasured and dear colleague at Yale University. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and her latest collection of poems is A Village Life. It was published in 2009 by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. Louise Gluck.
I'm going to read a poem from uh, a book called Averno. It's in five parts. The sections come from different consciousnesses, but together I think they represent uh, an idea or image of the passage of a human life. There are continuities. You'll see a horse. You'll see a field. Well, you won't see them, but you'll hear about them. Um, The third section, like many of the poems in this book, has as one of its focuses a field that is burned mysteriously. Um, The field gathers resonance when you read the book, which I hope you'll do. The poem is called Landscape. Is this too loud, too soft? It's all right. It's good. One. The sun is setting behind the mountains. The earth is cooling. A stranger has tied his horse to a bare chestnut tree. The horse is quiet. He turns his head suddenly, hearing in the distance the sound of the sea. I make my bed for the night here, spreading my heaviest quilt over the damp earth, the sound of the sea. When the horse turns its head, I can hear it. On a path through the bare chestnut trees, a little dog trails its master. The little dog... Didn't he used to rush ahead, straining the leash, as though to show his master what he sees there, there in the future, the future, the path, call it what you will. Behind the trees at sunset, it is as though a great fire is burning between two mountains, so that the snow on the highest precipice seems for a moment to be burning also. Listen, at the path's end, the man is calling out. His voice has become very strange now, the voice of a person calling to what he can't see. Over and over, he calls out among the dark chestnut trees until the animal responds faintly from a great distance as though this thing we fear were not terrible. Twilight, the stranger has untied his horse. The sound of the sea, just memory now. Two, time passed, turning everything to ice. Under the ice, the future stirred. If you fell into it, you died. It was a time of waiting, of suspended action. I lived in the present, which was that part of the future you could see. The past floated above my head like the sun and moon, visible but never reachable. It was a time governed by contradictions, as in, I felt nothing and I was afraid. 
Winter emptied the trees, filled them again with snow. Because I couldn't feel, snow fell, the lake froze over. Because I was afraid, I didn't move. My breath was white, a description of silence. Time passed, and some of it became this. And some of it simply evaporated. You could see it float above the white trees, forming particles of ice. All your life you wait for the propitious time. Then the propitious time reveals itself as action taken. I watched the past move. A line of clouds moving from left to right or right to left, depending on the wind. Some days there was no wind. The clouds seemed to stay where they were, like a painting of the sea, more still than real. Some days the lake was a sheet of glass. Under the glass, the future made demure, inviting sounds. You had to tense yourself so as not to listen. Time passed. You got to see a piece of it. The years it took with it were years of winter. They would not be missed. Some days there were no clouds, as though the sources of the past had vanished. The world was bleached like a negative. The light passed directly through it. Then the image faded above the world, There was only blue, blue everywhere. Three. In late autumn, a young girl set fire to a field of wheat. The autumn had been very dry. The field went up like tinder. Afterward, there was nothing left. You walk through it, you see nothing. There's nothing to pick up, to smell. The horses don't understand it. Where is the field, they seem to say. The way you and I would say, where is home? No one knows how to answer them. There is nothing left. You have to hope for the farmer's sake, the insurance will pay. It is like Losing a year of your life. To what would you lose a year of your life? Afterward, you go back to the old place. All that remains is char, blackness, and emptiness. You think, how could I live here? But it was different then, even last summer. The earth behaved as though nothing could go wrong with it. One match was all it took. But at the right time, it had to be the right time. The field parched, dry, the deadness in place already, so to speak. Four. I fell asleep in a river. I woke in a river of my mysterious failure to die. I can tell you nothing, neither who saved me nor for what cause. There was immense silence. 
no wind, no human sound. The bitter century was ended. The glorious gone, the abiding gone, the cold sun persisting as a kind of curiosity, a memento, time streaming behind it. The sky seemed very clear as it is in winter, the soil dry, uncultivated, the official light calmly moving through a slot in air, dignified, complacent, dissolving hope, subordinating images of the future to signs of the future's passing. I think I must have fallen. When I tried to stand, I had to force myself being unused to physical pain. I had forgotten how harsh these conditions are. The earth, not obsolete, but still. The river, cold, shallow. Of my sleep, I remember nothing. When I cried out, my voice soothed me unexpectedly. In the silence of consciousness, I asked myself, why did I reject my life? And I answer, die Erde überwaltigt mich. The earth defeats me. I have tried to be accurate in this description in case someone else should follow me. I can verify that when the sun sets in winter, it is incomparably beautiful, and the memory of it lasts a long time. I think this means there was no night. The night was in my head. Five. After the sun set, we rode quickly in the hope of finding shelter before darkness. I could see the stars already first in the eastern sky. We rode, therefore, away from the light and toward the sea since I had heard of a village there. After some time, the snow began, not thickly at first, then steadily until the earth was covered with a white film. The way we traveled showed clearly when I turned my head. For a short while, it made a dark trajectory across the earth. Then the snow was thick. The path vanished. The horse was tired and hungry. He could no longer find sure footing anywhere. I told myself, I have been lost before. I have been cold before. The night has come to me exactly this way as a premonition. And I thought, if I am asked to return here, I would like to come back as a human being and my horse to remain himself. Otherwise, I would not know how to begin again. Thank you.
Hello, I'm Isabelle Duconing, coordinator of the Writer Studio Reading Series. It is my great pleasure to introduce Edmund White. Edmund White has written some 25 books, and he's perhaps best known for his biography of French writer Jean Genet, for which he won the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's also the author of a trilogy of autobiographical novels, A Boy's Own Story, The Beautiful Room is Empty, and The Farewell Symphony, the novels The Married Man, Chaos, and Hotel de Dream, a book about unconventional Paris, The Flaneur, a memoir about New York in the 1970s, City Boy, and Brief Lives of Marcel Proust and Arthur Rimbaud. He has just completed a novel, Jack Holmes and His Friend, about the friendship between a gay man and a straight man. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and an officer in the French Order of Arts and Letters. He teaches writing at Princeton and lives in New York City. Please welcome Edmund White. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read from this novel that will be coming out next January called Jack Holmes and His Friend. And uh, this is 200 pages into the book. Uh, the, the poor gay boy is madly in love with the straight one uh, all through the beginning, which is in the 60s, before gay liberation. Now we're far... Uh, they, they, they split and uh, stop seeing each other, uh, but they've just run into each other uh, in New York, and, and, uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, and Will, who is the straight guy has invited Jack, the gay one, out to Larchmont, um, where he lives now, with his wife and two children. Um, and and um, Jack is the one who introduced Will to his uh, wife. And this is recounted rather daringly from the straight man's point of view. I even have straight sex scenes and all kinds of... <laughs> the, 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 the funny thing in this book is, uh, about this book is that my new best uh, uh, my new best friend is um, John Irving, and uh, he, he just sent me his book, which is where it's all about being gay and everybody's are you a top or a bottom and all this stuff. And uh, mine has all these daring straight scenes. <laughs> well, at a certain age, I guess you have to start reaching out. <laughs> I invited Jack out to Larchmont the following Saturday. I told him when and where the train departed from Grand Central, but I also offered to drive in and chauffeur him to and fro. I knew how cowardly New Yorkers could be about venturing into exurbia, but Jack accepted readily enough and asked if he could bring a woman friend along. Sure, I said, flummoxed for a second by this complication. In a nice recovery, I added, warn her that where major back-to-nature looms and the house is foundering in its own ooze, and tell her that everything on her kiln-fired dish will be arranged according to its yangness. <laughs> Jack's friend was called Pia, and I guess she was Italian, though she had no accent. She had long, straight hair through which the tips of her pale ears peeped, and she smelled nicely of vanilla, almost as if she'd dabbed her wrists with pure vanilla extract, the way, the way the maids would do back in Baltimore before church. P 
Pia had a small Cupid's bow mouth and dramatic blue eyes that seemed strangely flat and swimming. When she smiled, her lip would curl up on one side to reveal her eye tooth, and her huge eyes would swim from one side to the other. She had a small straight nose and a ready laugh, though usually she didn't seem to have quite caught the joke. Her breasts looked as if they'd been very small and high in adolescence, but were filling out nicely in the fullness of time. I was taken by her, but I hid it by looking at Jack most of the time and treating Alex, Alex, that's his wife, with extra attention, almost as if she were a convalescent. (laughs) We had two martinis each in the blonde Bentwood living room. They live in this totally mad house that was built by a Finnish architect and everything is these Bentwood... uh, Anyway, it's very Finnish, and they uh, (laughs) seated on the sagging Barcelona chairs. It was early February, so there was nothing to tempt us outside for long enough, uh, for long, though we did make a quick circuit around the dolphin fountain, the sundial, and the overgrown path down to the frozen pool. Luckily, everything was dead for the winter, and we weren't confronted by anything too feral and scary, because they, 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 they refused to do anything to modify... Uh, nature, and so they let it go completely wild. Of course, all their neighbors hate them. <laughs> it was getting dark. I built a fire inside, and it looked good after the desolation of the garden. Guilan, that's the nanny. Guilan brought in the children who made the rounds and kissed the four adults on each cheek. Enchanting, Pia whispered, smiling at Alex with complicity. Of course, Pia was the enchantment I was staring at in the short burst of attention I'd permit myself. Alex was absorbed by Jack. She was leaping up and kissing him on the forehead every other minute, and I thought, idea for... He's He's a novelist. And I thought, idea for story. A straight man pretends to be gay so husbands will trust him with their wives. (laughs) Then, Then I remembered I'd accused Jack of employing that strategy years ago when he first met Alex. She held his hands and leaned back and said, let me look at you. You're thinner. So are you. You have more character in your face. Lines, I'm more lined. Where's you? Lines, she said. Not at all. You look even younger. How amazing you've kept your figure after two babies. She laughed and said, luckily for you, I'm dressed. You wouldn't believe my battle-scarred body, a real horror show. Pia said, I love your house. It's enchanting. <laughs> the dinner wasn't too horrible. It was roasted root vegetables with the tahini sauce. There was lots of sugary California red wine, which Pia treated as a complete novelty, albeit an enchanting one. For dessert, there was a compote of dried fruit cooked in sherry with a cinnamon stick. You You guys are very back to nature, huh? Jack asked boisterously. You make me feel sooty and urban like an old fluorescent light bulb. We all laughed. I wondered if they were planning to spend the night or to take the late train back. If they stayed, would I get a chance to tuck Pia in? I sort of resented Jack for inadvertently inadvertently casting this temptation in my path. Or was he actively trying to test our marriage, complete with our adorable children and the conspicuous mosses on the old manse? At a certain point, Jack said, How did you guys ever get the money together to buy this place? 25 acres in Larchmont? That must have cost a cool million. This is 1973 or something. I sipped my iced Kahlua and said, What's that, Robert? Frost poem? Provide, provide. But Jack couldn't hear my discreet warning, or in any event, he refused to back off. No, he kept on. I mean, who paid for this layout? 
Alex said with elegant simplicity, my father, didn't you know he was rich? Remember how I used to collect Ching vases? Yeah, I do, Jack conceded, so what? Well, those things don't come cheap. How many girls do you know with a whole break front stuffed with Qian Lung? Well, that was awfully nice of your dad, Jack said, but the conversation left me feeling bruised, and I wondered if that was Jack's intention. Had Jack just assumed I couldn't have paid for the place myself? He wasn't done yet. You never did say, Will, what you do for a living now. I write annual reports for corporations. They're too paralyzed by bureaucracy to write them for themselves, so I have a freelance business. But what are they, Pia asked, sounding fastidious as if she'd found a mouse paw in the compote. <laughs> Before I could answer Jack, Jack, who is a, a, a business writer for Newsweek, Jack said, there are these glossy pamphlets sent to the stockholders explaining why the company's losses are a good thing. I, I get them at Newsweek all the time. The law forces them to make a full disclosure, but these four-color photos and carefully worded bromides are designed to throw dust in everyone's eyes. Alex, the, the little trader, laughed the loudest and said, Is that what you do, Will? I never really understood till now. <laughs> it's all a big deception? Still trying to be jaunty, I asked, How else do you think I pay for all the dried apricots and cinnamon sticks we consume? Pia said, no one in my family works, and they never have unless collecting rents can be called work, oh, or making wine. Where's your family from, Alex asked. Chianti, Pia said. I love hearing about the jobs real people have in America. <laughs> you have no accent, I said. Were you educated in the States? Yes, Pia said, at Smith. Smith, Alex exclaimed. I wanted to go there, but I was too dumb to get in, so I went to Cornell. They talked about their schools and then about Tuscany and how enchanting it was. Pia confessed her mother was American and she'd grown up bilingual. I was dying to ask what her enchanting little American forebears had done for money. Alex grabbed Jack's hand and said, But this is such fun. Can't you stay over? We can give you adjoining bedrooms and even new toothbrushes and we can have a wonderful brunch in the morning and smoke gitan. Oh, please say you will. I was still smarting from the revelation about who'd paid for our house and how mendacious and pointless my job was. But Pia looked ever more enchanting now that her little ears were standing completely clear of her straight hair, and she was speaking a bit less guardedly with that rough alto cast to her voice. She was friendly and sweet, and she knew how to smile encouragingly at a man and nod him into affirmation. Pia said, but you must have a very charged day tomorrow with the children. I can imagine, and maybe it would be best, Jack, but she didn't finish the sentence. She was too much of a real woman to impose her will on Jack. I thought it was such a phony foreignism to say charged instead of full or crowded, but at the same time, I didn't care. I was completely under Pia's spell. I almost pitied her for wanting to be interesting since we weren't. <laughs> yes, Will, Jack said. If you could drive us to the station, we could make the 1110. Next time, we'll spend the night the next time. He, he looked at Alex fondly, saying, Remember how you used to wear that red silk, what do you call them, hostess gown? I thought you were the height of sophistication. Alex socked him in the arm. And now, you cad. After I came back from the... Oh, uh, yeah. After I came back from the station, Alex was very excited and running around the house. She was listening to a Mozart sonata LP very softly because she'd read that Mozart helped you digest. 
That was such fun, she said, and she kissed me timidly and awkwardly on the cheek, since that was a demonstration she never made, not just like that, swooping down out of nowhere, a peck. She didn't peck, though come to think of it, she'd been pecking Jack all evening. Yes, so do you think Jack has changed, I asked. I was wondering if she would want to have sex after our revelries from the week before. I was wondering whether I, I would. Part of me longed to sleep in a different room, pretend I had a cold so I could jerk off thinking about Pia. Alex said, he's more sure of himself, don't you think? I wonder why he brought that girl out here with her not-quite-convincing continental ways. Anyway, Jack doesn't like girls, does he? And Jack's always saying he's, such, he's just an ordinary Midwesterner. But why is he always escorting these social tarts around? I think secretly he's a snob. You sound jealous, I said. Alex started to protest. In fact, the vein on her forehead throbbed visibly, as it did when she was about to blow a gasket. But then she caught herself and smiled. That was her most endearing quality, this trick of catching herself in mid-mood. You're right, she said. I guess I want to be his only friend. In bed, we talked more about Jack for a while. And Pia, she said, does that mean pious in Italian? Isn't that Ingrid Bergman's daughter's name? I said, I suppose it's just another Italian name, but it does sound awfully tacky in Sicilian. <laughs> yes, Alex said, but Pia was Ingrid Bergman's legitimate child, the Swedish one. I said, I thought she was pleasant and pretty. Oh, ho, Alex said, sitting up in bed, then as if she were a detective and she'd just uncovered a clue. She subsided back and said in a high voice, really the voice of, of their son Palmer, why did Jack drop you all those years ago? I mean, I know you said it was because you rebuffed his advances, but was that rebuffed his advances? Oh, God, Alex, you make me sound like a Victorian prude. Anyway, I dropped him. She was in her white silk pajamas without a collar, and she looked as luminous as a sad Picasso child. You dropped him? Why? I never dared ask you for details. I laughed quietly and turned off the light. Keep the light on. I'd like to look at you when you're lying. Yes, my dear, but we're in bed to sleep. But you still haven't told me. Well, after we talked it over again and again, his obsession with me, and I thought everything was settled, I was in the crapper at work reading the paper, and suddenly, for no reason, I looked up, which was, no one ever does, and there was Jack above the partition looking down at me. How could he be? He was obviously standing on the toilet seat in the adjoining stall, and getting his jollies by looking down at my crotch. Astounding. He was masturbating. How did that make you feel? Not good. And I thought about what I'd felt. Like a sex object. Feminists are always whimpering about being objectified. Well, I'm a feminist. So am I, I said, deflating her objection. I mean, you have a friend, and he's read your book, and shared your shitty review in the Times, and knows you're in love with Alex, and you've gotten drunk together and talked about God and death and art, and then you catch him looking at your dick over the crapper stall wall, and this guy is supposed to be your buddy. <laughs> not very elegant, I admit, she said. It's not just inelegant, it's a betrayal. It's why regular guys don't like fags. They're always trying to sneak a feel or stare at you in the locker room. I've never had that many buddies, not really close ones, but I can see the point of buddies. You're just two guys standing side by side looking out at the world. But if the other guy's on the make in whatever way, it doesn't matter which way. For instance, if he wants to get into your club or hobnob with your friends or get you to buy insurance, then the whole thing is off. Disinterested as the saints, Alex said. What? Alex could be irritating with her cryptic remarks. 
You expect friends to be disinterested, she said, to have no hidden motive. Don't you? Well, I suppose that's another way we're like. I don't have many friends, she said. Men friends? You have men friends? Oh, well, before my marriage. You're my friend. Our children are my friends. Animals are my friends. Anyway, I said, you don't want to have your best buddy suddenly leering at your privates in the middle of the day at work. He didn't even have the good grace to tackle me drunk and late at night. But he didn't tackle you, Will. He was hoping you'd never notice. She sighed and turned on her side toward me and stroked my face with the back of her hand. It's really rather sweet, Jack lusting after you. So hopeless since you like women. It's true I've always liked women, admired them. Men just don't interest me. But maybe, Alex said, yawning, that's why you like Jack, because he was always accommodating himself to you, yearning for you, just as a woman might. I'm not saying he's effeminate. There's nothing effeminate about Jack Holmes. That makes it sound as if I only wanted to be adored. Well, then put it this way, she said. An ordinary heterosexual man wouldn't make a huge, huge effort to become friends with you, and you certainly wouldn't try. When boys are teenagers, it's easy being on the same sports team or in the same eating club. But after that, do you think? so you think I can only be friends with a fag? Oh, I don't like that word, Will. It's like nigger or yid. Really, it is. But yes, you need someone to make all the effort because... You're off on your own cloud. I'm too shy. I, I could admit I was shy. So what happened that day? Did you shake your fist up at Jack? Well, the awful thing is that the crapper scene happened after I got my horrible Times review, after we got drunk together and I gave him a hug for a moment. You what? Well, remember how bummed out you held him? Well, yes, he had me to dinner the night of the review. Well, then of course he thinks he can take liberties with you if you held him. I was suddenly angry at Alex's screwy reasoning. She said, stop smoldering, Will. She rubbed her delicate fingertips into her temples, some sort of yoga trick she did when she was tensing up. I started again it's such, in such a low voice that she glanced at me with puzzlement. I was being nice to him, Alex. I knew that would make his day, and besides, he's very, he'd been very kind to me. She got up and stuck a finger into the plant on the sill, I suppose to see if it needed water. Then she went into the bathroom to wash her hands, and yes, she was brushing her hair again in that maddeningly vigorous way of hers. When she returned, she said, Anyway, tonight was a wonderful evening, and I'm glad we're friends with Jack again. And of course, you're, you were a giant sweetie to hold him that one time. I was, just so, I was just startled. It's so out of character. But it's to be encouraged, dear. I just wanted to sleep now. Alex had this way of reacting priggishly at first to something, then doing an about-faced and endorsing it, especially if doing so made her look broad-minded. She'd object to taking ghetto kids into our Larchmont country day, and then she'd campaign for it while quietly transferring our own children to the local Montessori, <laughs> saying it was because she liked their philosophy of education more. She always wanted to look liberal, since in her own mind she was on the barricades as Miss Liberty, the bare-breasted one in that French painting. As I started to doze off, I thought about Pia, and for some reason I pictured her very tan in Capri, wriggling out of her swimsuit and revealing two milk-white globes aft and two astern. I wondered again if Jack was up to some mischief, bringing that woman into our house. After all, he'd introduced me to Alex. Now did he think it was time for me to have a mistress? Would he be watching me and Pia over the partition of the crapper? <laughs> Idea for novel. Queer finds mistress for beloved straight man.
I was tempted to get out of bed and jot it down at the risk of disturbing Alex's very light sleep. But then I thought, I could never tackle that subject. A married man cannot write autobiographical novels, not if they're based on the truth. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're all very good laughers. Thank you. Uh, the, the, our last reader is Michael Cunningham. He and I keep doing these gigs together. I think this is like our third in, in, in three months. Um, and what's interesting is that Laurie Moore, whom he's replacing, has written this ab about him. His prose is of a particularly shimmering beauty that accrues quietly and steadily, its power revealing itself in a stunning fashion by narrative's end. His books are evidence that without a certain kind of exquisite writing, the human mind remains unrevealed to us. His subjects are artists and lovers and the devotion they both inspire and require. Michael Cunningham was born in Cincinnati in 1952, 12 years after I was born in Cincinnati. <laughs> he was educated at Stanford, University of Iowa, and the Iowa Writers' Workshop. He's uh, been a professor of creative writing at Yale, at Brooklyn College, and at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown. And his main novels and books are Golden States, A, House, a, Home, by the, a Home at the End of the World, one of my favorites, Flesh and Blood, the Hours, which is everybody's favorite, Specimen Days, and his most recent book, By Nightfall. He's written uh, two nonfiction books, Land's End and A Walk in Provincetown. He's written the screenplays for A Home at the End of the World and for Evening. He's won the Missionary Fellowship um, from the University of Iowa, the Guggenheim uh, Whiting Writers Award, the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and the Penn Faulkner Award. Michael Cunningham. Oh, thank you. Wow, I am so not Laurie Moore. Um, <laughs> and it's just such a thrill and an honor to read with Ed and Louise and Kaz. Um, there are hardly any jokes in this, um, but it's too late to run home and get something new. <clears throat> it is from a novel I'm, I'm working on called uh, The Snow Queen. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah. It's a little bouquet of short chapters. Her body has been buried in snow for almost a week. She is like a sleeping princess, though the snow has brought changes. Her skin is ink blue. Her lips have drawn back from her teeth. One blue-black hand is laid over her breasts, and the other covers her throat. She is modest in death, though she was not modest when she was alive. She wears the saffron-colored dress that she bought for New Year's Eve. Too expensive, but she bought it anyway, thinking of a midnight kiss and thinking beyond midnight. Only a prince of the dead would kiss her now, and his kiss would not bring her back to the living, but transport her to the realm of the truly dead. She resides for now in her frozen middle world, sought by a mother and three sisters who insist that she's alive somewhere, 
that she's run off with that man, as she was, in fact, thinking of doing. And until she is known to be dead, until the few who loved her can see her as dead, she is suspended, unliving, but being so desperately imagined as alive, troubled by tiny brain sparks that are not dreams, the dead do not dream, but minute flashes of beingness, like the fleeting lights of fish in deep water, the crackle in her ice-cold brain, and will not cease until she's found. You know, the marriage thing is very weird, Liz says to Andrew. They're standing on the roof with veils of snow billowing around them. They've come up to the roof for the shock of it, after a night that just rolled off the time spool. Oh my God, Andrew, it's four in the morning. Shit, Andrew, how did it suddenly get to be 5.30? We've got to get some sleep. They've been too high to have sex. But there were moments, there were moments, during the night when it seemed to Liz that she was explaining herself entirely, that she was able to hold her very being in her outstretched palms and say, here I am. Here is the golden box, all tricked open, every hidden drawer and false bottom released. Here's my honor and my generosity. Here are my wounds and my fears, the real as well as the imaginary. Here is what I see and think and feel. Here's my acuity and my hope and my way of turning a phrase. Here is the meanness of me, the tangible but inchoate entity that shifts and buzzes within the flesh, the central part that simply is, the part that finds it wonderful and appalling and strange to be a woman named Liz who lives in Brooklyn and owns a shop, the unnamed and unnameable that which God would recognize after the flesh has fallen away. Really, who needed to have sex? Now she's quieting, returning, reconnecting with a mix of sorrow and gratitude to her more corporeal self, the self that still blazes with its own light and heat, but is tethered by all the sinewy little strings, the self that's capable of pettiness and irritation, skepticism, and sourceless anxiety. She's no longer aloft, no longer spreading a star-studded cloak over the nocturnal woods. She is still full of mingled magic, but she's also a woman standing on a roof with her boyfriend, pelted by blowing snow, a denizen of the ordinary world, with someone who might say, you know, the marriage thing is very weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it, Andrew says. He is uncanny in the snow-blown dawn, at once spectral and uber-real, luminously pale as a jot of saint, snowflakes caught in his cropped red hair. She says, it's a lovely gesture. I think it is. That's strange, too. Don't you think, don't you think it's strange? Is she talking too much? Is it possible that in their night-long orgy of conversation, She's been boring him? Was the bestowed treasure really just a woman of a certain age going on and on and on? Mm, yes, the bonds of the flesh are back. Here again are the doubts and the little self-mutilations. Nasty, but oddly comforting as well. So familiar are they. 
How can anyone stay high all the time? How could anyone bear the raw, blinding beauty of it? I don't understand it, he says. I mean, why? He's shutting down. She's exhausted him. Still, she's not quite ready to let it go. The ragged ends of the glorious night, the conviction that everything can be understood and praised. I want to make her happy, I guess, she says. I think Tyler wants her to feel like someone a man wants to marry. You know, I think, Andrew says, she waits. He's working something out. He's no Schopenhauer. (laughs) He doesn't need to be. Though she does wonder what it will be like for him when his slow-eyed, stately youth, the whole boyish thug-saint thing starts slipping away. When he's no longer crackling like this with the confident languor of fresh beauty, how many people will wait for him to finish a thought? He stands snow-sparked, berobed, waiting to decide what it is he thinks. He says, I think Tyler might want to, you know, make sure everybody knows how special she is, you know, to him. Not bad, man-child. If Liz thought he was going to stay, she might undertake his education. As it is, she frankly prefers him untutored, heartbreakingly earnest, stitching his thoughts together clumsily so that the fabric pulls in bunches. They'll make it easier when he's gone. Well, maybe, she answers, that might very well be true. It doesn't mean he doesn't love her. Is this, for, is this the first time she's heard him say the word love in any context? Yes, probably. No, she says, it doesn't. Hey, are you shivering? I'm a little. Let's go back down then, she says. She leans over and kisses his cold lips. Tyler sits in the kitchen, sipping coffee and doing a quick line by way of an early morning heart starter. He feels raw and startled and virtuous being up at this hour. (laughs) He is sitting in boxer shorts and a Yale sweatshirt at the table he and Beth found on the street. Cloudy gray formica that's chipped away in one corner, a ragged edged gap, the shape of the state of Idaho. Thanks to the coffee and the Coke, Tyler has moved from the fuzzy anywhere of early drowse into joyful clarity. He can see the day ahead, this teaspoonful of time that's been sprinkled onto his morning path. The color of the coming day feels red, a deep garnet red. Nothing gaudy about it, no false cheer. More like the profound blackish red of heart's blood. Because it's a dark red day, Tyler thinks maybe he'll move the new song in a slightly different direction. So as not to awaken Beth, he leaves his guitar in the corner. He whisper sings a cappella to walk the frozen halls at night to find you on your throne of ice, to melt this sliver in my heart. Oh, that's not what I came for. No, that's not what I came for. 
the repetition at the end. Forceful or cheap? Should he try for a half rhyme with heart? Is it cheesy to use the word heart at all? Name a song in which Dylan used that word. Name a Neil Young. He's a guy who sings about hearts. World, are you prepared? And yet, it's the snag in his heart. There's that goddamn word again. He can feel it, an undercurrent in his bloodstream, this urge that's utterly his own, the self inside the self, secret, because he believes, he does, that he knows within himself a brilliance, or at least a gorgeous clarity that hasn't come out yet. He's still producing approximations, and it tortures him that most people see him as an aging bar singer when he knows, please God, that he's still nascent. No prodigy, of course, but the music and the poetry move slowly in him. Great songs hover over his head, and there are moments, real moments, when he feels sure he can reach them. He can almost literally pull them down out of the air, and he tries, Lord, how he tries. But what descends is never quite it. He gets closer as he ages, but he still bangs up against the crudeness of his brain, that impossible organ that can only manage melt this sliver in my heart when his blood demands a barbed and searing truth. Fail. Try again. Fail better, right? Liz makes breakfast for Andrew like a farm wife. She doesn't mind. She doesn't really mind. It's a little sexy, isn't it? It isn't unsexy. She could be a substantial woman, firm-featured, nobody's fool, stirring the eggs in the iron skillet, living in a house fastened to a chirping green vastness, a woman too ample, too sure-footed for the winds to worry, smarter than her man, cagier, Lacking, perhaps, his garrulous two-stepping charm, but possessed of a gravitas, a profound sureness, the depths of which he can barely imagine. She scrapes the eggs out of the pan, sets them down in front of Andrew, who sits innocently at her kitchen table in white briefs, smoking. She lets him smoke in her apartment in more or less the way she let a beloved child put on her clothes, try her perfume. When she delivers Andrew's breakfast, he exhales a plume of smoke through his nostrils and drapes an arm around her hips. She plucks the cigarette from his fingertips and takes a drag, just for the sexy mominess of it. She quit smoking years ago. Expertly, she flicks the butt into the sink. Eat, child, she says. You're not having any? <laughs> I'm still too high. He chows down, doggishly pleased by food, which inspires in her a minor spasm of fondness and pity. She says to the feeding boy, after breakfast, you should go home and get some sleep. You too, he answers through a mouthful of turkey bacon. Ah, I have to be at the store in a couple of hours. I'll, I'll sleep tonight. You're amazing, he says. Yeah, he's right. She is amazing. And she knows it. 43 isn't 21, but she looks good. She's making money and she gets the boys. 
Here's the funny part. Andrew, in theory, holds the winning hand. Young and hot and just dim enough to be happy most of the time. <laughs> Trip aces. And yet, she knows where he's headed. She feels guilty, a little guilty, about knowing what she knows, but what can she do about that? She knows how his blunt-faced beauty will erode. He lacks the brow and the jawline he'd need for a handsome middle age, and he lacks the discipline he'll need to keep from sprouting a belly. He will abandon his already rather vague and haphazard ambitions to be an actor. He'll come to his senses, as most people do. He'll marry, live in a house or apartment somewhere. Whereas Liz, if she has anything to say about it, and she has something to say about almost everything, will be a staunch and rather intimidating old woman with rings and sunglasses, gray hair pulled back tight, still raking it in, still seeing boys like Andrew, all the more bemused by their ephemeral conviction that they are the winners in the world. Just as the farmer must discover, to his great surprise, that his heart will explode before he reaches 70, and that his wife will roll on for another 30 years or more, serene and majestic as the freight trains that have been sending their distant, oboe-like horn moans across the dark fields for as long as anyone can remember. Last one. The snow is beginning to melt under the white disk of the newly emerged sun. It is imperceptible to everyone except the dead woman, along whose blue-black skin a low tingle has commenced, the smallest of sensation, which she does not feel, as ice crystals shift ever so slightly downward, not melting but ebbing in response to the minute <clears throat> evaporations occurring on top. Within the woman's frozen brain, there are fewer and fewer sparks as her mother and sisters begin briefly, on occasion, to cease thinking of her as they abandon not only hope, but the very idea that she might be alive somewhere, as they begin to number her among the dead. She's embarking now on the last period of her transformation. Soon, soon enough, her body will be discovered, thawed, eviscerated by a coroner, cause of death, strangulation, and yes, someone had intercourse with her after she died consigned to the flames and reduced to ash, bone shards, and a single fingernail. That will be the end of her. Now, however, she's still whole, still slumbering, and the ice-slicked snow that entombs her is eroding away, stately as a miniature glacier. Within a few days, she will emerge ravishing by the standards of the dead, but otherwise according to the more limited lights of the living. Her face the color of a raven's feathers, her black lips drawn back in a leer, her whitened eyes opalescent in her ebony face, staring straight up at the winter sun. Thank you.
add a brief word uh, of thanks to Michael and to Ed and to Louise and to Kaz. Uh, that is my idea of writing. And, uh, the, and it's... And it's the Yale Review's idea of writing, too. Now you know what goes on in New Haven uh, during the week. Uh, these are people who uh, capture life and thinking about life at the same time. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Johnson once said of Milton that he looked at life through the spectacles of language. And these are four people who have learned how to use words to get to uh, the heart and at the heart of things as well. So uh, thank you. I, I wanted to mention, by the way, that today is, happens to be, I noticed on the calendar, the, uh, the anniversary of the birth of Robert Frost. Robert Frost <coughs> was, a long time, is, was a long-time contributor to the Yale and once wrote to the editor in the 1930s complaining about the $10 fee that he was paid for one extraordinary poem after the other. He asked, uh, he thought he was better than anybody, could, could he get more money? The editor wrote back and said, no, uh, this is going right. And uh, Frost wrote back again saying, well, um, I, I regret your decision, but uh, I'd rather be published in the Yale Review than, uh, and make less money than elsewhere and make more. Uh, and you've heard four writers uh, in, that have that kind of view, too. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad you were here tonight to listen to them. And uh, please, another round of thanks for, for them. <laughs>